Again, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until, it, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called a list in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing our series in Matthew. It's called Better Kingdom, and we're looking at the person of Jesus, and for a little bit of context for those of you who may be just jumping in, uh, Jesus has just started his public ministry, just had his coming out party, and this is his first sermon. And this part of the message is the, he's closing the intro, and he's in the, he's in the Sermon on the Mount here, which is essentially his manifesto for how those who are in his kingdom ought to live. Or maybe my favorite way of describing the Sermon on the Mount is it's a handbook for modern rebellion because it pushes against sensibilities on both the left and the right. And here Jesus, he closes his intro by emphasizing the centrality of the Bible. And I think this is a good time to do a little bit of self-reflection. Just ask yourself, what do you feel about the Bible? And for some of you, the answer is something to the effect of, like, I, I love the Bible. I read it. I live it. I breathe it. You know, I can, can hardly read my Bible because it's so covered in notes. And if that's you, awesome. Like, that's Jesus. Jesus loves the Bible. But just the, the more I've lived and worked as a pastor, uh, the more I've found that that's often a minority view. And so even for those of you who are in church, if you're honest, and if you're pretending you're not in church for a minute— I think your answer might be something to the effect of, well, I say I love the Bible, like I want to love the Bible, but when I look at my week, you know, I, I don't, I rarely open it unless I'm going to a church-related function, or I want to love it, but to be honest, I often find it boring or confusing or maybe outdated and out of touch with my experience. So do I love the Bible? And for others of you, there's a lot more baggage, Right, because while the Bible has been used for many good things, right, it's been used to empower women and minorities. It was the basis for the abolitionist movement. It's the foundation for our civilization's notion of human rights. It's been used for a lot of good things, but it's also been used for not so good things. And so for you, when you hear the question like, what do I feel about the Bible? It's like, well, I think of bad church memories or sinister politicians or people mis misinterpreting the Bible, right, to justify things like war and misogyny and abuse and hatred against sexual minorities and megalomania and all of the above. And so when we talk about the Bible, there's a lot of places we could go. Like we could look at what does the Bible say about the Bible? There are plenty of places where the Bible talks about how the Bible is inspired by God and therefore we should trust it. And those are helpful and needed places to go. However, I, I think for those of you, whether you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're here and you're a believer, but you're wrestling with your faith, sometimes that starting place isn't helpful because you think something effective, well, that sounds like circular logic to me. Like the Bible says I should trust the Bible because the Bible says I should trust the Bible. And I mean, the Book of Mormon says that, the Quran says that, right? They, they both claim among other religious texts, they claim to be divinely inspired. 
And so what's helpful about this passage is because here it helps to cut through the noise and look at what Jesus himself, right, flesh and blood human being who also was God himself, what he says about the Bible. And so for those of you who are believers, it's helpful to see like what does the Lord you apprentice under feel about the Bible? And for those of you who are working through this stuff, hopefully this helps get like what are the most important things you need to know about the Bible? Okay, and so in this short passage, this is maybe arguably the most important section in the Sermon on the Mount, so let's try not to mess this up. Uh, We can distill it down to Jesus, uh, these three things about the scriptures. So Jesus loves the Bible, he fulfills the Bible for you, and then number three, he gives you the Bible to change you. So Jesus loves the Bible, he fulfills the Bible for you, and then number three, he gives you the Bible to change you. Okay, so first number one, Jesus loves the Bible. Starting here in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here the word abolish, uh, that comes from the Greek word kataluo, which means to do away with or throw away. Uh, Later in Matthew, Jesus will use the same word to describe the dismantling of a building or institution. Uh, Translators have also pointed out that you can also translate this word abolish, deconstruct, right? So he's saying, I haven't come to deconstruct or to throw away the scriptures. And this phrase here, the law of the prophets, that's how first century Jews would have, that was their Bible of the day, law and the prophets, refers to the Old Testament scriptures as a whole. So I haven't come to abolish, deconstruct the Bible, but not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he continues in verse 18, for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a letter or, a, or even a, a scratch of a letter will pass from the law until it's accomplished. So when he says until heaven and earth have passed away, in other words, he's saying, when will the Bible become irrelevant? When pigs fly, when hell freezes over. Okay, the Bible is never going to become irrelevant. And so the point here is, I mean, Jesus's life and his teachings must have been so provocative and unique that there were Bible-believing people of his day that thought he didn't hold to the Bible as authoritative. So that's why he's clarifying here. No, no, I haven't come to do away with the scriptures. Okay, no, I, I hold fast to the scriptures. He's saying, I, I love the scriptures. And what we saw right before this in Matthew 4 is it was the Bible that Jesus relied on when he battled Satan himself in the wilderness. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, we're going to see Jesus, he's explaining how the Bible leads to life. And then throughout the whole rest of Matthew, we'll see Jesus depending on the Bible, obeying the Bible, living and breathing the Bible. Okay, he loves the scriptures. So that's the point here. And as we look at this, this is a, <laughs> it's a challenge to everybody. And it's a challenge to, like, to reduce things into categories. You could say to both conservative types and progressive types. And it's challenging to conservative types because Jesus here and other places, he's speaking to like the Bible fundamentalists of his day. And these are individuals like they love the scriptures, but they love the scriptures in order to basically label others as out and themselves as in and prop themselves up as feeling superior. But that's never how Jesus uses the Bible for himself, nor how he commands us to use the scriptures. Because Jesus always uses the Bible to know the Lord and to love others. And so for you, I mean, you may not consider yourself a Pharisee, right? You may not think like, no, I don't use the Bible to condemn others. But I just, I want us to be challenged here because, like, for example, when you see somebody in the church behaving in a way that you just don't understand, 
Like, are you quick to think to yourself, or, like, I just don't understand how you could possibly live that way? Or you get exasperated quickly, right, with people who aren't living according to the Bible as you think they should be? Or in a group setting, maybe like a community group or discipleship group, or you're out to dinner, like, do you loathe the idea of saying something about the Bible and then being corrected or being wrong? I think in this area, there, there can be a lot of pride there, right, with wanting to be the one with the piercing insights, that, that's a pharisaical attitude toward the scriptures. Okay, so it challenges, you could say, a more conservative pharisaical view, but it also challenges a more progressive view because a lot of progressive people and churches that lean progressively, uh, often how they approach the scriptures is something to the effect of, you know, the Bible is an extraordinary piece of literature, and maybe some sections are inspired by God, maybe not, but there are clearly a lot of sections of the Bible that are outdated or need to get with the time, so we just need to basically pluck some sections out. We're only going to emphasize some and de-emphasize others. And if eventually defanging the Bible so that it has no more spiritual authority than that of a fortune cookie. And, like, if you're, if you're not a Christian, like, that, that position makes sense. But for those of you who maybe do lean that way, like, with all due respect, that's a, it's just a nonsensical position to hold. Where if, if you say, I know and love Jesus, but I don't hold to the scriptures as authoritative, because Jesus and the Bible go together. It's like hiring a basketball coach, and you say, I love them, but I don't listen to a word they say about shooting a basketball. Okay, Jesus never gives a category for apprenticeship to him that doesn't also include reading the Bible as scripture. And there's a, a quote by an author named Andrew Wilson that I, I, this book was helpful for me and maybe it'll be helpful for you. So here's, here's what he says about Scripture and as it relates to Jesus' love for the Bible. Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, and good, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered, or my answers remain unpopular. It's so good. So Jesus loves the Bible. That's our, that's our fundamental basis for loving and trusting the Bible as well. Okay, point one. So point number two, Jesus fulfills the Bible for you. So back to verse 17. I have not come to abolish them, i.e. the scriptures, but to fulfill them. So what in the world does that mean? I've come to fulfill the Bible. Well, first it means that Jesus is the point of every story. So Luke 24 is the, one of the clearest places to see this, where he's explaining the Bible after he's, he's resurrected. And he's telling his disciples, he says, all the Bible points to me. Every story whispers my name. And there are a number of, of authors who have written something to the effect, and here's one version for you. Just going, like, what does it mean that every story of the Bible points to Jesus? And this goes roughly in chronological order or linear order of the Bible. Jesus is the better Adam who passed the test in the garden and, and whose obedience is credited to us. Jesus is the better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and go into the void to create a new people of God. 
He's the better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who sold and betrayed him and uses his power to save them. He's the better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who now intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. He's the better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory and never fails them as their leader. He's the better Esther, who didn't only risk losing a palace and risk her life, but lost the heavenly palace and gave his life to save his people. You can keep going. And you can do this for books of the Bible, too. So in Ecclesiastes, he's the truth that makes this life worthwhile. Song, Song of Songs, he's the lover of our souls. Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant. Jeremiah, Jesus is the righteous branch. Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband who sticks with his unfaithful bride. Amos, he's the burden bearer. Obadiah, he's the judge of all the earth. We could do each one. Okay, every story whispers his name. He's the hero of every tale. And... What this does is this, I mean, so much, but one of the things it does is it helps us make sense of difficult passages in the Bible. So just as one example, I've had a number of people say something to me, like they're actually reading through the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, so they say things like, like, I'm reading the Old Testament, there's a lot of wild stuff in there, like polygamy, incest, rape, like gruesome violence, like that puts Game of Thrones to shame, apparently, and, like, God's okay with this? And if the Bible is a series of disconnected stories with moral lessons of how you need to live, then maybe that's what it's saying. But if the Bible's a story about Jesus in the world, and it is, then usually what these stories are is they're not prescriptive of how things we need to live. What they're doing is they're describing precisely what humans will do when we're left to our own devices and why we need a new heart given to us by the Holy Spirit and for Jesus to come and renew the world. And here's how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present, present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. I mean, so many, so many times when I see confusion in the scriptures, including in my own history, like this is a big part of the reason why we get confused with the Bible. Okay, so first, Jesus fulfills the Bible because he's the point of every story. But second, he, f- he fulfills the Bible because he accomplishes it for you. Okay, so while the Bible is ultimately a story about Jesus, the Bible does contain laws, ethics of how we should live to enjoy God and life with other people, right, and to avoid all of the relational pain that we experience. But we don't obey it, hence the mess of the world. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he fulfills the law twice, and one of the best ways that helped me understand this is if you imagine a traffic light, so there are two ways to fulfill the law. One is you obey it. Stop on red, go on green, speed up on yellow. Okay, don't be that guy who causes people to miss light behind you. Just kidding. If there are children here, listen to what your parents say about yellow lights. Okay, so you can obey the law by, you can fulfill the law by obeying the law, right? Second, you can fulfill the law by paying the penalty. So that yellow light turns red, you go through it, you get pulled over, you fulfill the law by paying the fine, points are added to your record, and so forth. Either way, whether you've obeyed the law or you paid the penalty, now the law has no more claim on you. 
you're free. And so what Jesus does is he comes, when he comes into the world, he fulfills the law for us in both ways. So first he obeys the law, every single bit of it. Okay, every heart motive, every action, never holding bitterness, never re responding to mistreatment in kind, not organizing his calendar based on personal comfort like we're prone to do, right? But doing positive good, especially toward those who aren't going to repay him. I don't know how he never sinned against people like Peter <laughs> and James and John, but he, he obeyed the law, every bit of it, including the heart motives we're going to see later in the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of his life, so he first he fulfills it by obeying it, and then he fulfills the law by paying the penalty. And that's what the cross is about. Okay, we're on the cross. He is in your and my place, right? Being treated as you and I deserve for disobeying the law, being judged, being condemned, being cut off from God so that you and I can be brought into his family. And because of this now, the law has, when you trust in Jesus, the law has no more claim on you. And everybody has a law. They're, they're trying, for some of you, it's re religious people who don't get this are often the most miserable, right? Mark Twain described his experience reading the Bible as like, he said he'd have these dreams about, he'd wake up and it was this giant Bible crushing his chest and he could hardly breathe because that's how he, he viewed the law. Okay, but when you, when you get this, what Christ has done for you is now this means you don't live based on how other people regard you. You no longer live even based on how you regard you. You live based on how God regards you. And how does God regard you? The exact same way he regards Jesus. Not only not having n never disobeyed, but having lived a life of perfect beauty. All of Jesus' accolades and medals are pinned to your chest, as it were. And what does this do? Well, it, it, it changes everything. <laughs> but when it comes to reading the Bible, now the Bible is no longer this book that you have to, like, you're just continually crushed by the rules, right? And it's no longer a book where you pluck out what doesn't accord to your sensibilities. But now when you come to the Bible, it's to come know the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And then all the ethics now are no longer the means of have I done enough, but it's how you live life to the fullest in his kingdom. Okay, so Jesus, he fulfills the Bible for you. So just, I want to encourage you guys, especially for those of you who, so many of you I know here, you, you try so hard to obey the Bible. And I, I'm, it often challenges me and encourages me. I, but I think a, a danger there is you begin to move the law from what Jesus has done from you and is now your signpost toward loving him and resembling him. And now it's the thing where it's just like, I'm never enough. I'm never enough for myself. I'm never enough for God. I'm never enough for other people. Okay, but Christ has freed you from that burden okay, because he's fulfilled the Bible for you. And now this leads to number three. Okay, Jesus loves the Bible. He's fulfilled it for you. But also he gives you the Bible to change you. And so here we see this in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying is there is a powerful relationship between how you approach the scriptures and your experience in the kingdom of God is how you could sum that up. And then he continues, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this little statement, like this would have fallen like a bomb on Jesus's original hearers. There was a saying common in Jesus's day that if only two people get into heaven, one will be a scribe and the other will be a Pharisee. And so at first this sounds like he's basically saying, like he's telling an 11-year-old boy who likes football and wants to play, like if you ever want any hope of doing anything in football already today, you have to be better than Tom Brady. Like, that's what it sounds like to his original hearers. But actually, first what Jesus is saying is, when he says your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, well, first, it already does, right, if you've received the gospel of grace, because we're counted righteous not based on what we do, but by faith in Jesus. But then there's another sense, practically, where our righteousness does exceed that of the Pharisees, because Jesus says, you know, the Pharisees aren't as holy and righteous or adhere to right living as they or you think. And later in Matthew, we'll see him give examples of this. So one is they pick and choose what they want. Jesus rebukes them. He says, okay, so you tithe mint and cumin, and that's good, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, right? Mercy and justice. Also, they're they're proud in how they obey the law. He he says, you know, you just love it when people see you obeying. You, You love it when you're the one who walks into the party and everybody stops and turns to look at you. So you're proud in how you obey the law, but also you're external. He calls them whitewashed tombs. The more you think about that image, it's like you look really pretty on the outside, but inside you have the stench of death. Okay, inside your heart is just as bitter, angry, lustful, self-centered as the worst of people. So actually, it's a pretty low bar to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And what happens is when we receive the gospel of grace, everything we just heard about Jesus fulfilling the scriptures for us, what this does is now we no longer pick and choose what we want to obey. We no longer say things like, well, where's the chapter and verse on, you know, what I should do with media consumption or my boyfriend or girlfriend or what I should do with my money or how I should work or how I should utilize my speech. It's just, you begin to think through things much more expansively. You know, it's now how in any of these actions I'm doing or things I'm saying, does this most point people to the beauty of Jesus and his kingdom? Hey, you're no longer motivated by pride, but joy. And your, your actual heart begins to change too. And also, just as important as when you obey out of the gospel of grace, not as how a scribe or a Pharisee does, is your obedience becomes a lot more enduring because often what happens is you, you, you start obeying God, right? You're like, okay, I'm doing ABC, and you're praying. And then a season comes where you pray for something and God doesn't give it to you, right? Or things just aren't going how you want them to be. And you may not say it out loud, but what you say in your heart is like, well, all right, well, forget you, God. Like, that's what I get for obeying you, for praying to you. And like, with all love and tenderness, you just, you have to recognize that is a pharisaical spirit, right? Because what, what that is, is a, it's a conditional obedience. If I do these things, God, then you're the vending machine in the sky that's supposed to do these things for me. Okay, but the gospel frees you from this. Okay, so he's saying, one, he's saying the scribes and Pharisees aren't as holy as, as you think they are, but also, I've come to make you far more holy or like me, than you think you can be. And we're going to see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is saying, when you've received my grace, like, do yourself a favor and go home and read the Sermon on the Mount, and just imagine if you and those around you lived this, 
and how just how much different your home and workplace and relational lives would be. So he's saying, I can actually make you far more wise, mature, and a more complete representative of me when you enter into relationship with me. And so to sum all this up, why read the Bible? To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus himself does. Because he gives you the Bible to help change you. And now to bring this, hopefully, like a little bit more on on the ground, to think about this a bit more practically and how we can begin to apply this, is I think for most, if not all of us in here, this requires a radical shift in how we approach the Bible. And I'm largely getting this from an author named Robert McColland. And... Robert Mulholland, sorry, and he actually, I just realized, he passed away in 2015, but he was a, he was a professor for decades at Asbury, where those of you who are up to date with what the kids are TikToking, there's that, been that recent, what looks like a really big revival on the campus there, like largely led by 18 to 22-year-olds, and he wrote a book called Shaped by the Word, and he describes, and the title says it all, right, Shaped by the Word, what we're talking about right now, being changed by the Bible, and he says he sees in the West the biggest shift we need to take as apprentices of Jesus is moving from an informational reading to a formational reading of the Bible. And he unpacks this and he says, you know, in because of our cultural values and because of the digital age we live in, like we in the West tend to approach things through an information mindset, i.e. information is power. So whoever has more information about money, about God, about diet and exercise, about politics, you're now in the better position to, you're in the best position possible to better your life, to control other people, to get the outcome you want. And so we read for information, not formation or to be actually changed. So when we come to a blog post or a textbook or a news article or even the Bible, rather than wanting it to form us, we just read it as fast as possible so that we can have more control over our lives and get the outcome that we want, which is exactly the opposite of how Jesus from A to Z says we're, we're to approach the Bible. And he makes the point that he, he makes some comparisons and contrasts between informational reading and formational reading. And he says informational reading is about covering as much ground as possible to get it done rather than slowing down to be formed. Informational reading seeks to master the text, to stand over it and critique it. And use it for our purposes, whereas the goal of formational reading is to let God, through the scriptures, master and critique us, to change us, to look more like Jesus, which is often painful. Informational reading asks, is this working? Okay, is this doing something for me? How do I feel about it? Whereas formational reading understands the long game, knowing that being changed by God and knowing him isn't about what you feel in the moment, right? But it's a lifelong journey of slow growth. And for a lot of us, this type of reading, coming to the Bible and therefore coming to God, the deep change that happens within us is profound because what this means is we have to come to the Word not with a posture of control, but of open-yieldedness, you could call it. And I think maybe you think you're really good at this, but I'm realizing even with my children who are three and one, just how hard this is. Like, I'm finding the more they know that mom and dad don't want them to do something, they want to do it. Like, we just love being the master of our lives. We love to control, or we love the illusion of control. And Mulholland puts it this way. Like, when we come to the Bible not with an open yieldedness, here's what happens. He says, the very thought of being conformed 
which implies we are to be grasped, controlled, and shaped by someone other than ourselves, confronts us. Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Manipulators reject being shaped by God. Information gatherers are structurally closed to being addressed by God. Genuine spiritual formation, or being conformed, reverses our role from being the subject who controls the objects of the world, in this case, the Bible, to being the object of the loving purposes of God who seeks to control us for our perfect wholeness. And then, love this final line, genuine spiritual formation brings a fundamental shift from being our own production to God's creation. And so to be clear here is, like, reading for information has its place. Like, I do it all the time, studying the Bible. But when that becomes our primary way we approach the Bible, okay, not having this open-yieldedness is, at best, it makes our lives gray and dull. Or worse, we become increasingly closed off to Jesus. And so the point here going back to the beginning. The point here is not to be unthinking, right, or soft-minded. Like, I'm just going to read everything at face value and just never question, never point out the ways the Bible has been used in horrible ways. And we never get that idea from Scripture, right? But it's also, the point also isn't to come to the Bible with, like, a presupposition and precondition of suspicion and cynicism, but to come with an open posture where, where we say, Lord, as best as you can help me, help me know that things go far better when you're in charge and I'm not. And so for those of you here who maybe you're a believer wrestling with doubts, maybe you're here and you don't count yourself a Christian, like just so you hear this, there are a lot of challenging and provoking things in the Bible. There's a lot of confusing things in the Bible. And you know what? The Bible isn't shy about this. Like, sometimes I think a lot of Christians try to, it's like, oh no, don't go in that room. The Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible's never shy about this. Like, one of the ways that God uses the Bible, it's almost like a, if you've ever had one of those brilliant, eccentric professors who they invite you into their office, and it's just a mess. But they're like, come on in. You know, don't mind the mess. Let's explore together. Okay, the Bible invites us into that same kind of curiosity. And my encouragement to you is to, if you're here, and I know more than one of you who don't count yourself believers, have told me that you want other people to help you read the Bible. And that's that's been so heartening to me. And I just want to encourage you to keep going, to keep exploring, and to, as best as you are able, you know, talk to the Lord, even if you're not sure he's there. And say, if you're there and you have something better for me, I come to you with a yielding posture ready to hear from you. And for those of you who are believers— you know, we're getting ready to move to a morning service in a month or so, a little over a month. And we may grow numerically, we may not, I'm not sure. But either way, like, say we improve in many ways as a church. Whether, like, structures, systems, discipleship programs, numerical growth, you know, whatever. If, I would just hate for that to happen but then for us in here to be like the people that Jesus approached in John chapter 8. They were religious people, and he comes to them, and they were arrogant. They loved control, and he says, you have no room for my word. Like, my, my word makes 
there's no room for it. You don't allow it to make a home in you, in your life. And so I, I encourage you, and we're doing a lot of this in our discipleship groups now, in discipleship groups, to just come to the Word as often as you're able and kneel before the Lord and just say things like, hey, I find this boring. I find it confusing. I'm not sure that this is doing anything. But I come to you wanting to be changed, wanting to be with Jesus, and wanting to be made like Jesus. And as you do that, especially if you're in a period right now where you're having a really hard time trusting God, know that as you do that, you're coming before the one who was first, who first had a humble and open-yielded posture toward you, right? Went on the cross. I mean, he was in that yielding posture, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit so that all the scriptures may be fulfilled and those who don't yet know me may be brought into my kingdom by grace. That's the one you go before and you get to commune with in the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us uh, and you don't try to make us just guess through creation and through things in the world what you're actually like or according to our own sensibilities. And I pray for... Uh, all of us in here, that you will help us grow to be uh, more and more shaped by your word. Uh, whether we don't know Jesus yet or we already do, uh, will you, those of us who are proud, will you please, my goodness, um, in love, uh, pry our hands off of whatever identity we're holding onto that's not Jesus. Uh, for those of us who don't know how to read the Bible, I pray that you'll help, that you'll use the community here to help people learn how to read and uh, how to enjoy time with you and how to learn walking with you even when things don't feel like they're great. I thank you that your word does change us and help us to hold to it and love it as your son Jesus did. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.